The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today my guest is Ash Sarkar. We'll be talking about the causes of the Brexit vote, the case for Lexit, the strategy of the People's Vote campaign and the prospects for Change UK. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, Soundcloud and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. Before we get to today's interview, here's just a brief word on the truly seismic event that was PTO's first birthday. The following recording is from the first of hopefully many PTO annual reports, which was posted earlier in the week. Firstly, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of the show's supporters and listeners. Uh, The show began really as a bit of an experiment, and I didn't have huge expectations of how it would do. But since it was launched in April of last year, it's had close to 160,000 individual listens. And in its small way, it does feel like the show's become a bit of a feature on the UK left media landscape, if uh, maybe more of a, a foothill than a mountain. The show's supporters and followers on social media have been really crucial to the show finding a listenership, so once again, a big thank you to all of you. I'd also like to thank the show's fantastic guests. It's been really interesting for me to have the chance to chat to some incredibly smart people. Many of those guests, of course, are very well known, um, but in a couple of cases, it's been really gratifying to know that in a small way, uh, the show has helped some really interesting work by some less well-known people to find new readers. Also, a big, big thank you to Joanna Romero for hosting the Fantastic Red Hack series, which is a series of conversations with journalists on doing journalism in the neoliberal hellscape that is 2019. Um, Do check out the series if you haven't already. Finally, just a word on future plans. So over the coming year, I'm hoping to expand the range of content that the show produces. So in addition to interviews, there will hopefully be debate format shows, some roundtable discussions, and possibly even a daily mini episode on current affairs. Additionally, I'm going to try to get some episodes transcribed, either to be hosted elsewhere or possibly on a PTO website. None of this, though, is really going to be possible without listener support. So currently the show has just over 200 patrons who give monthly donations to the show, uh, which is frankly a lot more than I'd hoped for when the show started out. But if PTO is to be viable in the long term, it's, it's really going to need uh, more of the show's regular listeners to donate. Each episode currently gets about three to 4,000 listens. So obviously 200 patrons represents a fairly small proportion of the regular listenership. So if you find the show valuable, uh, if you're frustrated by the state of mainstream media, and if you're financially able, it would be hugely appreciated if you would consider becoming a patron. Um, Currently, patrons who give $3 a month, which is just over £2, get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. Uh, That's usually about 15 to 20 minutes of extra content per show. And from this week, they will also get advanced access to new episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. 
And now to today's interview. Ash Sarkar is a writer, broadcaster, journalist and lecturer living in London. And she is a senior editor at Navara Media, where her work focuses on race, gender, class and power. The interview was recorded before the Article 50 extension until October was agreed. I was sort of thinking that a lot of the discussion around Brexit that we see at the moment, you know, sort of focuses on all the the minutiae of the debate in Parliament and the Kremlinology regarding Theresa May's position and that of the key players in the European Union. And I don't know if you'd agree, but I mean, to my mind, a lot of that stuff seems particularly unhelpful as you sort of see positions that are probably in many cases just rhetorical positions that are taken up for tactical reasons are just, you know, reported as if they accurately reflect the views of the people in, in question. And so because of all of that, I thought it'd be good to maybe take a step back and chat just a little bit about how we've ended up where we are. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, firstly, where do you think we are in terms of sort of properly understanding how the Brexit vote happened, who the Brexit voting coalition was? Um, And I ask that because even now I'm still sometimes surprised to see the extent to which the Brexit vote is sort of attributed solely to to some particular demographic, you know, sort of the left behind communities in smaller towns and the countryside and this sort of thing, rather than take into account a uh, very large number of numbers of pretty affluently voters in the home counties and, and so on. So how would you want to characterise uh, the Brexit vote? I mean, it's a bit like when Juen Lai got asked what he thought the French Revolution was about and he was like, oh, it's too soon to tell. Um, and I think that's one of the things is that when, once we're, when we're living in the midst of the upheaval, it's really difficult to take that step back and make sense of it because everything that you're looking at is also inflected by your own preferences, your own biases, your own uh, politicised subject position. So that's my like big caveat mm. to everything that I'm about to say. Um, I think that the voting coalition that delivered Brexit was much more diverse than a lot of people gave it credit for and I don't just mean racially diverse I mean it was socioeconomically diverse mm. it was diverse in terms of uh, regions in terms of it being able to include uh, rural constituencies small towns outer edges of cities um, and the story in terms of age varied greatly especially when you looked at demographics in the cities compared to demographics um, in towns it showed the fragility of the union as a political entity and I think really highlighted that devolution looked increasingly like a stepping stone on the way to full independence, particularly for uh, Scotland and thinking about the reunification of Ireland. So it's really hard to say this is the, um, the portrait of the voter who delivered Brexit was. I think it's more useful to think about the way in which Brexit was a floating signifier for a large range of concerns, values and experiences. And the fact that it was a floating signifier for, I think, so many kinds of politicised attachment has led us to the crisis that we're in now, because there's not one Brexit. There are two Brexits. Mm. There's Brexit as a constitutional process, and there's Brexit as the hopes, dreams and ambitions of 17.4 million people who voted for it. And those things are going to come to conflict inevitably. 
And I mean, in terms of those those hopes, it's sort of how much credence do you give to the idea of a sort of progressive Brexit vote of some some kind that was might in some sense have been a sort of a, a negative vote in the sense of wanting to cause some kind of rupture with the system, um, but that was not as inflected by, say, anti-migrant feeling or, or the desire to see you know Britain become Singapore or something like this? I mean, it's 2019. We can stop using Brexit as like, word or the things that we don't like um it it took me i think the last few years to move from seeing it as purely a story about race and migration to seeing it as something a bit more complex in which race and migration uh, play a significant part so i think it's worth considering the specific miscalculation that david cameron made because i think that helps you understand what brexit is So David Cameron is at the helm of a Conservative Party which has done surprisingly well in 2015. And he looks at that electoral result in which the Conservatives did a lot better than they had expected. And he sees that as a ringing endorsement of the status quo. And also he's coming off the back of a different referendum result, the whole AV plus electoral reform thing that Mm. doesn't go particularly well so he thinks now's a really good time for me to get what's effectively a sign-off on the arrangement of power in the UK today and that's what this referendum is going to be and it wasn't that because all of the electoral and referendum offerings that he had presided over and done very well at were choices which wouldn't really change anything in any meaningful way whatsoever. AV plus, people didn't understand it. 2015 election, well, it was between austerity and austerity light. Mm. And suddenly Brexit comes along and it's a chance to articulate your sense of frustration with the distance that you feel between yourself and sovereign decision-making institutions. It's an expression for a form of exclusionary national identity it's a way of saying you know what i don't want to have to listen to these technocratic arguments about gdp anymore what's gdp ever done for me Hmm. and so looking at that state of affairs i can see how some leftists might interpret you know brexit as a vehicle that they can hijack effectively to make that the wedge in a progressive project and I think there's a little bit of truth to that I don't think for instance that Corbyn would have done nearly so well in 2017 had there not been the Brexit result in 2017 it's not because perceived affinity between himself and Brexit but because uh, the nature of the upset put agency back on the table I suppose it raises the question of of how the Labour Party might have done in 2015 had it been led by the left at that time. So would you be inclined to suggest that they wouldn't have achieved a similar result to 2017? It's hard because we're dealing with counterfactuals mm. and there are also other elements at play. So the reason why Corbyn was so strong in 2017 is that you had, you know, seven years of an anti-austerity movement, which mm. had been operating 
quite well across various different demographics and building up a left which hadn't really existed in this country at that level of strength for for decades. Mm. So, you know, that's a hard one to reduce it all down to Brexit. But I do think that the sense of defying expectation was really important in 2017. And I think that's got a lot to do with Brexit. It's interesting to hear you describe that that journey from seeing Brexit solely um, or, or primarily in terms of a, an anti-migrant vote and, and wanting to complicate that picture somewhat, whilst recognising that the anti-migrant feeling was still a you know a key part of the of the the cause of the Brexit vote. Because um, it feels to me like there's there's uh, a significant number of people who've sort of been on the opposite journey, who've been sort of more, you know, initially were probably more sympathetic to a Lexit position, viewed it more as a sort of generalised anti-status quo position with uh, maybe greater progressive elements than most people would perceive, perhaps, and have perhaps been on, on that sort of opposite journey where they're factoring in to a greater extent uh, a recognition of the uh, reactionary nature of that vote in amongst certain demographics. I, I don't know if you if you feel that as well. Well, I think trying to understand what it was that drove people to the ballot box is the same as saying, oh, I think it was all progressive. For me, it was about unpicking my own assumptions about how race and immigration factor into other political concerns. So I still think that primarily it was to do with those things. Mm. And race became the kind of you know, lever of control or how people had imagined control um, when it came to uh, their immediate political and social environment. And and what I mean by that is, um, it's actually like a quote from Paul Embry, who is not someone who I would consider myself sharing politics with, but it's something he wrote that I thought was really revealing. He was talking about immigration into the East End and how predominantly white people in the East End reacted. And he said, it wasn't their sense of race that was upset. It was their sense of order, which to me actually sounds more racist. But I think that gives you a decent amount of insight into the way in which onto the presence of not just migrants, but people of colour more generally, you have a whole political story projected. So why is it that migrants are the embodiment of globalization mm. and to roll back on a arrangement of global capital which does weaken and parcelize sovereignty and does wreak economic devastation on previously industrialized parts of the country why is it that we associate rolling that back with having fewer immigrants why is it personalized and embodied in that way and that's when you then have to get into the history of racism the history of xenophobia and understand the role it has played in shaping the emotional affect under undergirding our politics i think Mm. does that make sense yeah it does i mean it's interesting that i think because um, uh, obviously, one of the sort of central tropes of, of centrist politics is, is horseshoe theory and the, the notion that the left and the right are, you know, sort of not identical, but have sort of more in common with each other than they do with the centre. And obviously, you know, we're, we're all inclined to, to want to dismiss that. And there are lots of reasons to dismiss that. Um, but there is nonetheless that thing of, of as, as I think you're sort of pointing towards, that, that 
the way in which the the right and and uh, especially the far right will try to pivot off a sort of a generalized sense of um, confusion and an unhappiness that people will feel um, about the status quo and then uh, and even about capitalism in its sort of disruptive tendencies and then sort of attribute that to a particular constituency in this case uh, migrants well I mean Horseshoe theory is bollocks, and the reason why centrists like it is because it puts them right at the centre of the action, mm. and they've not been there for quite a few years. Um, but I think that when it comes to understanding, because there is that section of the left which I think is intensely hostile to migration, mm. you, you get your head around that by realising that there's not been one left in this country. There's no one unified left. There are different institutions, different histories, different organizational tendencies and you've got to look at them for what they are so the trade union movement in this country has not always been on the side of migrants and people of color it's differed from union to union but there's been a great deal of antagonism when it's come to including migrant workers in a unionized workforce there have been huge battles internally about whether or not black and Asian minority ethnic people could have caucuses at unions. So, and that history was never really done and dusted and put to bed. It was always sort of lurking there under the surface. And I think that it's something which is coming back now with lots of the arguments over Lexit and what that means for uh, restrictions on the movement of labor. Yeah. And I, I suppose as, as well as, um, the, the existence of, of uh, anti-migrant feeling and anti-migrant positions on on the far left. There's also the fact that the, you know the, the mainstream of the Labour Party has also got a pretty terrible record on this stuff. And uh, I mean, it's pretty weird seeing sort of new Labour types positioning themselves as these kind of uh, you know sort of proponents of, of openness and cosmopolitanism and all this sort of thing. Given you know the pretty ugly rhetoric of, of new Labour. Uh, some new Labour politicians around questions of migration and, and particularly asylum. Yeah, well, not just rhetoric, but actions. So who was it that opened Yarl's Wood? Who was it that halved asylum, uh, granted asylum applications and doubled the number of temporary working visas? These were all new Labour policies. So, you know, that's quite, quite frankly, that's bollocks. But they're only able to weaponise freedom of movement and migrants' rights issues against the left because we are not strong enough on these issues. And that's because of the relative institutional power, I think, of those more reactionary tendencies to the left. On the question of, of Lexit, I think, you know, on, on the face of it, there are certain aspects of the Lexit argument that, that are plausible and have, have a degree of truth to them. So personally, I'd be inclined to agree that, that uh, the EU is on a sort of generally neoliberal trajectory. Um, and I think there's a very strong argument that can be made that to a su- substantial extent, the attraction of the European project to conservative and centrist forces in the 80s, 90s and 2000s was that it would sort of insulate decision-making from domestic populations. Um, and I think it's rightly pointed out that um, that the institutions of the EU were substantially less democratic than those of the individual member states. And of course, there's also that argument that Brexit is a crisis for British capital, which indeed it is, and that it shouldn't be the job of the left to sort of bail out the failings of the British uh, of, of British elites. And, and as well as um, Brexit 
being substantially about ending freedom of movement, there's also the, the reality that the EU's borders uh, themselves are sites of thousands of deaths and tremendous, suffer, uh, tremendous suffering. Um, so, so what is your sort of overall evaluation of those maybe stronger aspects of the Lexit position? Well, I completely agree with all of those critiques of the EU. My position, which was I voted Remain before, I probably would do again, isn't actually a pro-EU position at all. Mm. It's looking at the likes of Nigel Farage, looking at the people who are behind the Leave.EU campaign and saying there's no way in hell that I'm sharing a ballot box with you, quite frankly. That's mm. that's as far as it is. It goes. Um, the Lexit analysis is broadly a correct one, but I don't think I'd be blowing anyone's mind when I say that the astuteness of an analysis and the viability of a political project are two very different things. So, who are the social base that Lexiters are appealing to? I don't think that the Lexit social base is necessarily people who voted Labour and voted Leave. I would say that actually it's figures like Morris Glassman and Paul Embry and that sort of blue Labour lot Mm. who articulate that set of values much better. It's people who felt really strongly about the brutal and reckless austerity that was imposed on Greece around the time of the sovereign debt crisis. The problem is, is that most of the people who felt really strongly about Greek austerity voted Remain themselves. So I don't see it as a as a political project which can mobilise a social base behind it. I see it as a retrospective reasoning applied to a political event that they had no role in producing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so you would tend to think that the Lexit argument was just kind of an irrelevant factor in terms of the first referendum, that there wasn't really a sort of a, a position around Lexit that was broadly known and had any influence at all. No, and I've interviewed a lot of Leave voters. Not one of them mentioned EU strike law. Hmm. It's it's a fantasy, I think. If we, I mean, I realise this is a hypothetical, but if we, if we imagine it, that there had been a situation in which... Lexit was a, a significant factor in that referendum and that the forces of the right were not as strong as they are. You know, in the abstract, what is your view of the Lexit position? Because there's also questions around, can the EU be reformed by remaining in it? Is it better to try and establish some kind of rupture, which then works as a sort of pole of attraction to other progressive forces in Europe? And I mean, I, I spoke to um, Katerina Principe, not uh, well, a few months ago, about this regarding Portugal and her argument for for leaving the eurozone in that in that case. I mean, if you're asking me, if there were different circumstances, would you have voted differently in an in-out referendum? Well, yeah. And for mm. me, the thing that it would come down to would be, uh, would staying in the EU impede Britain's ability? to have a more progressive and more anti-racist migration policy. So reciprocal arrangements between Britain and Commonwealth countries, for instance, and not just the Commonwealth countries with white people either. Um, if the EU was getting in the way of that, I would be like, and there was also a social movement with insurgency and effectiveness, making that demand, gaining traction amongst the population, then 
hell yeah, I would vote leave. But that's not what happened. And it's not what's happened in the intervening three years. On, on the question of, of, of racism, I mean, I, I saw you speak at the Media Democracy, Democracy Festival in, in London and you were talking about how um, you'd um, experienced racism in London of a kind that you just sort of hadn't experienced prior to the Brexit vote. Do you have much of a sense of just, just how significantly there has been a sort of emboldening effect upon the far right and in terms of just kind of everyday uh, racism that people now endure? Um, how much of that do you think can be attributed to, to the Brexit vote? I think that attributing all of it solely to the Brexit vote means that you let a lot of people off the hook. And the people that you let off the hook are the effective media operators of the alt-right, who've been very good at nurturing conspiracism and hostility and have also generated a sort of alt-right intellectual hinterland which nourishes racism in everyday society Hmm. the other set of people that it lets off the hook are the newspaper editors and the politicians who have really been pushing the idea that immigration in certain quantities represents an existential threat to britain and obviously this is overlapped with the war on terror in a really significant way. And then thirdly, you've got the Brexit vote and what the Brexit vote was seen to mean by some people who voted for it. So the day after the Brexit result, because it was also during uh, the Euros, I think it was. Mm. um, And so obviously everyone's just like out boozing and like watching football and England flags everywhere was that you had people chanting like Brexit in my face as that was a football chant the next right. day. Yeah. Uh, I had someone uh, call me a brown cunt. Um, <laughs> like all, all these awful things happen, mm. and it's because Brexit was the vehicle for their particular vision of national identity, and it was a vision of national identity which meant that they could show a middle finger to anyone who didn't look like them. Um, But again, that's part of a story which I think has got many moving parts driving it forward. What's your view? I mean, I know you're not a member of the Labour Party, but am I right in thinking you sometimes sort of get introduced as one uh, in the media sometimes? Uh, Yeah, incorrectly introduced as one. I'm not a member of the Labour Party. Yeah. What is your evaluation of, of the Labour Party's uh, current position, both around questions of of, um, of free movement, but also just more broadly, it's, it's, it's Brexit strategy? Okay, I mean, so I think those are two separate questions. One, I think that its Brexit strategy, which is also different from its Brexit position, has been a very good one. It's been the only one uh, that they could take because the electoral coalition that delivered the 2017 result Uh, was comprised of both Leavers and Remainers and 78% of the Tory marginals that they would need in order to to deliver a majority at the next general election all voted Leave. So you can't have a leadership position in which Jeremy Corbyn fights Brexit with the same energy that he had for fighting austerity. That Mm. would just alienate 
a significant part of his electoral coalition and it would be downright reckless, I think. So I think that they played a weak hand very well in the last two years. And you can see how that's played out in terms of making a soft Brexit all but inevitable. They've managed to drag Theresa May kicking and screaming um, towards their own negotiating position, which is a, a tremendous achievement in itself. However, um, the nature of that strategy means that they have to be boring and they have to be yeah. shifty. <laughs> right? and, and the position changes day by day with, you know, it's this thing of all options on the table and the table is just, you know, it's like a seance table and it leans a bit more in one direction one day and then a different direction another day. And you've got a, you know, troop of Labour MPs telling you that nothing has changed. Mm. That, that obviously pisses a lot of people off. But that's the trade-off of that strategy. Yeah, and I suppose it also makes Corbyn look more like a regular politician, right? I mean, it feels like it's been easier over the last couple of years to to make him seem uh, as, as sort of less of an outsider than he was perhaps seen before in some respects. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's brought out, you know, it's the first time he's really had to come into contact with real politique, and it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's not much fun to watch. Just on, as you say, the the brute reality that the Labour represents a significant number of Leave voters and has sort of therefore had to take a kind of compromise position. Uh, I mean, I imagine that, say, people around the, the People's Vote campaign, that their argument would go something like, well, if, if one believes that remaining in the EU, say, is, is, is the correct position to take, and that's what, um, that's what we should be aiming for, even if one has, you know, some, uh, you know, a, a great number of reservations and criticisms of the EU. Um, but, it, but if that is the correct position, then true leadership is to try and take your coalition with you and to actually make the argument with Leave voters and to try and turn them around. Would, would you be inclined to, to view that as, as just sort of unrealistic? I mean, that's a great argument. So why haven't they been doing that? It's their job if they're the People's Vote campaign. You know, they're the sort of main pole of attraction in uh, Romania land. That's the precise opposite of what they've been doing. They've been trying to, you know, um, play this very tired tune that the whole result should be cancelled because of improper spending. Essentially, they're trying to stop fascism by calling the cops and getting them arrested on a technicality um mm. it's it's mad what they've done is close off the space for any sort of effort of persuasion or indeed compromise and what my worry is is that the people's vote contingent in parliament will keep driving a wedge so the only two choices on the table are no deal or no brexit because in that situation i think that no deal is the more likely of the two you've been listening to politics theory other if you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.